This is Space 101.1 LPFM, Magnuson Park. That sound can mean only one thing. That's right, time for another voyage exploring the past, present, and future of the old Oregon country. Come aboard and get set to ply the waters of the Pacific Northwest, metaphorical and otherwise, on another thrilling episode of Cascade of History. And now, stumbling out of the cluttered purser's office of the SS Columbia, here's your host, Felix Bonnell. It's Cascade of History, so we're here for the next hour, and we've got some great guests lined up. Uh, we're going to be talking to a holiday crooner, a guy named Jake Bergevin, who I actually went to kindergarten with many, many years ago. And uh, then we're going to be talking to Natalie Picard, who's with Heritage BC, talking about a program called Heritage Week. That's this terrific annual event they do uh, it's for a week, so it's called Heritage Week. It's every February. They pick a theme, and then they sort of... Um, work province-wide to do all sorts of heritage activities. And we'll talk to Natalie about that because I'm not sure there's anything like it here in Washington or in Idaho or Oregon, for that matter. But uh, I'm curious to find out more about it. And then we're going to be talking to uh, Santa Bill. And Santa Bill is a longtime local Santa. He's heard the wishes, childhood wishes around the holidays of kids in the Northwest for many, many, many years. So uh, let's see. Without further delay, I want to get, we're going backstage. We're going to go live backstage to the Fox Theater in Spokane. I'm hoping the phone works, because <laughs> if the phone doesn't work, it's going to just be me doing a soliloquy for an hour, which wouldn't be the end of the world for me, I don't think. But let's see if we can hear, uh, let's see if we can hear our guest. Jake Bergevin, can you hear me? I can hear you, Felix. Oh, we can hear you too. That's great. Oh, good. I'm so glad. <laughs> You're, this is Jake Bergevin. You and I went to kindergarten, I think, together. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Miss, uh, I'm, blank, I'm blanking on our kindergarten. Miss Norris at Ben Franklin <laughs> Elementary School. I think her name changed halfway through the year, and I can't remember anymore. Oh, and then that was our first grade teacher, Mrs. Dumond. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> but, yeah, but, okay. But before we bore people off the air, you're, tell me where you are right now. Well, I am actually in the hotel across the street from the Fox Theater, and uh, I'm in the historic Montvale Hotel. And, uh, and we just finished the show, and it was a smash. Uh, we had so much fun. I get to play Saturday night and Sunday matinee and uh, with the Spokane Symphony Orchestra. So last time I talked to you, it was probably in high school, and I, but I followed your career, and I think we're friends on Facebook. I know you're a jazz musician. I know you're uh, the music director and jazz band director at Edmonds Woodway High School, and you've been doing jazz stuff for decades. Um, but tell me, what, what were you doing? In, and tell me, you're in Spokane, right? Tell me, what were you doing there? What, what was the show like tonight? What'd you actually, what were some of the songs that you put on? Well, this is their Holiday Pops concert, and it was a smorgasbord. They had the, the Spokane Orchestra, uh, Symphony Orchestra, and the chorale, and a student chorale, uh, children's choir, and then they needed a crooner. It was called, the concert was called Crooners and Classics. <laughs> and I sang six tunes uh, in kind of like the, the Bing Crosby style, and I even got to play some trumpet solos, and it's just a really good time. So what were the songs that you sang? Let's see. We did uh, Bing Crosby's version of White Christmas, which you probably know is one of the top-selling recordings of all time, with 100 million copies sold. <laughs> and uh, that was the finale. And then we also did his rendition of uh, Jingle Bell, and I did What Are You Doing Christmas Eve, and... Uh, the most wonderful time of the year. Let's see, Ella Fitzgerald's version of "Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas," and the other one's escaping me right now. Oh, uh, Mel Torme, the Christmas song, which oh, is yeah. near and dear my heart because I actually got to talk to Mel Torme on the phone once on the Larry King live show when I was in high school. That was a kick. Wait a second. Wait, wait. You talked to Mel Torme. Tell me about how did that happen. So I was in high school, as you remember, we were all music geeks, and uh, and I stayed up late one night because I heard Mel Torme was going to be on Larry King. I called in and called in and called in until I finally got him on the horn, and I was listening just voraciously back then. I knew every song he sang, I knew every solo he sang, and when he finally picked up the phone and Larry King uh, says, uh, "No, what would you?" I just froze entirely. I didn't know. 
to talk to him about. I just wanted to have him know I was alive. So I asked him, when's the next time you're coming to Seattle? And he told me, and I went to that concert, and it was wonderful. That's great. I wonder, like, that's an interesting demographic. I wonder many, how, how many other high school kids, in, this is in the mid-'80s, I would guess, were into Mel Torme like that. Uh, I think the number is quite small, yeah. That, you know that Larry King. I I used to listen to that Larry King show a lot because I've been an insomniac since I was a little kid. <laughs> so I, oh, I, I didn't know that. I probably heard that episode. I probably did, probably didn't know it was you though. That's that's hilarious. Um, that, <laughs> <laughs> so um, so this your love of this kind of music goes way way back. What what first turned you on to wanting to sing like the, in the kind of style you sang tonight and to be into Mel Torme when you were just a teenager? Well, thanks for asking. This is pretty fun for me because, uh, I, you know, I think all people want to see themselves in the art that they love. And so because I started playing trumpet as a fifth grader, I kind of turned a corner and started loving music that included trumpet. And so there, are, there wasn't a lot of pop music in the time, as you recall, in the 70s that, that included trumpet, except for maybe Chuck Mangione. Oh, yeah. Uh, and so <laughs> I started listening to jazz and... Uh, you know, my parents were going through some rough time. My parents got divorced, and I just kind of found an identity because of our high school band director, who was back then, he was my junior high band director, he was a trumpet player, Gary Evans. And uh, he turned me on to some great recordings, and I started going to these performances because I would hear these artists would come to town. So I'd take the bus downtown Seattle, and I'd go hear Ella Fitzgerald, and I'd go hear Mel Torme, and, and uh, on and on and on. I got to meet a lot of these folks, including... Cab Calloway and George Benson, just on and on. Wait, you got um, to just, wait. You got to I meet. Cab, you got to meet Cab Calloway. I did. I did. I got to meet Cab Calloway. He uh, opened. Well, he didn't open. He actually covered for Count Basie in 1984, the year Count Basie died. The Count Basie Orchestra was scheduled to come to the Paramount Theater, and I had tickets. And when I showed up, Count Basie wasn't there, but Cab Calloway led the band instead. And after every concert, I would always just rush the stage and walk up the stage <laughs> pretending I knew where I was going and go backstage and meet the folks. <laughs> that's that's hilarious. What was Cab Calloway like? He was just a really nice old man at the time. And, you know, he'd already run his whole career. He must have been, he had to be in his 80s at that point, right? Uh, and so he was just really nice, uh, just sweet. The same with uh, Ella Fitzgerald. She, she could hardly see it all. She came to her dressing room door with these, these Coke bottle glasses on like I'd never seen in my life. Glasses this thick. And she tried to sign an autograph for my wife and I, and she punched the pen through the ticket like three times because we didn't have anything firm to write it on. Uh, and it, it was very nice. I think Cab Calloway came to his dressing room door in like his T-shirt, if I remember. Now, Cab Calloway, of course, is his big, his big, most memorable hit is Minnie the Moocher, right? And I have sang that tune a thousand times. <laughs> so now the Fox Theater, I've never set foot in the Fox Theater before. I've driven past it many times. I have family who oh, live up on South Hill. Oh, you need to go, man. Yeah. What's, what's it like? What's it like? It's gorgeous. It's totally renovated, Art Deco style. Uh, the, it, it, was, it is from the, the 40s, actually, actually even earlier. Yeah. Because Bing Carter performed there when he was in high school and uh and then in the 80s they kind of turned it into a cineplex and it turned into a movie theater they broke the whole thing up in a bunch of rooms and uh and it was basically dying and so in 2005 some big donors stepped up and said we're bringing this thing back they broke down the walls they 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 had to etch the grimy cigarette tar off the walls and they repainted everything by hand and it is beautiful inside now. What's, what's the acoustics like for someone singing like a crooner like you? Well, they were fantastic. We had a, a wonderful uh, sound person. Uh, Pam ran the sound tonight, and, and she knew exactly what she was doing. And the orchestra just responded wonderfully. to the, the. Actually, we had the associate conductor from the Portland Symphony conducted, and she was a spitfire. Her name is Deanna Pham, and it was a blast. Uh, yeah, I, I could hear everything, and, and uh, you know, my family bootlegged some of the, the recordings on their phones, and I listened back to it, and I was like, that's pretty good balance. It's nice. Now, uh, do most people know about the Bing Crosby connection to Spokane? Is that something that's common knowledge? 
Well, it certainly is in Spokane, but I don't think around the world people know that. You know, I don't think very many people even think about Bing Crosby anymore. But he was kind of a dude. He, he was really a happening figure. <laughs> and I learned more this week because I was over here for like four days. So I went to the Bing Crosby Museum and I learned a whole bunch more about him myself. But uh, yeah, he's definitely a big deal in this town. But the other theater across the street is one I played in about seven years ago with Spokane Jazz Orchestra. And it's called the Bing Crosby Theater. Oh, okay. okay. And I mean, for those who don't know, what is the connection? I mean, what, what did you learn this week at the Bing Crosby Museum about his connection to Spokane and the Northwest? Well, he grew up here. He uh, actually was born in Tacoma, and he grew up in, uh, I think he moved over at a very young age, four or five, to, to Spokane. And uh, it was kind of weird to, to go through the museum. And, and I mean, it's just a one-room house or four-bedroom four little craftsman-style house that they have put a bunch of artifacts and historical stuff in it there were a couple of docents that really knew what they were talking about which was really fun and his family sounded oddly familiar to my family he's from a family of seven kids like i am (laughs) and uh he he fell in love with the drum uh and he had a paper route like i did and uh i mean it was just weird how many similarities there were he's a big catholic family like i was and uh he started playing band gigs in high school and making money playing private parties, kind of like modern-day kids, DJs do, you know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he was having some success singing that he kind of slowed down on the drums and uh, went through high school making music, was in a little jazz choir in, in high school, and then when he went to college, I think he was there for only a couple of years at Gonzaga, and uh, his brother, let's see, who's the guy? Al Rinker, who is... Uh, the brother of a famous singer, I might not be able to think of her name, Mildred Bailey, maybe. Oh, you're doing great. Um, this is great. Oh, thanks. <laughs> they moved to L.A. They just kind of decided, we're going to L.A. and let's see what happens. And they totally got lucky when they got down there and, and uh, you know, the rest of the And, you know, the I, I've been throwing the phrase crooner around all weekend and talking about this interview coming up and thinking about Bing Crosby and thinking about the work that you did there at the Fox Theater last night and earlier this evening. But what what actually, what makes a crooner a crooner? What makes crooning crooning compared to just singing or, or belting a tune out? That is a great question, Felix. I That's why I'm here, answer. Jake. That's why I'm here, Jake. I have the great, I, I do the great questions. You have the great answers. Uh, you know, I don't know if I have a great answer. <laughs> i got to say, I think there's something about crooning that is, uh, it's definitely different than the art song singing uh, from the middle, you know, 1800s that all the, the classically trained singers were trying to learn. It was more like every man's song, you know. The crooners are kind of like, um, just sounds like a guy down the street that can that can hold the tune and can sing with some emotion. Um, and so when people hear me sing, they don't mistake me for somebody that can actually sing like an opera singer. It's a different <laughs> thing uh, entirely. But I, I've never really tried to define it, and, and I, and I kind of resisted it. You know, the first 15 years of my public performing, people started calling me a crooner, and I'm kind of like, wait a minute. You know, I have a master's degree in trumpet performance. I'm a musician. <laughs> I, I'm not a crooner. But I, I don't mind the title anymore because I just think it's such a kind of, a, you know, just straight to the heart kind of music. People really respond to it. Yeah, I, I think part of it, it really it coincided with the rise of radio and the rise of electric microphones that could pick up. You know, you, could, you didn't have to belt it to the back row. You could sing very intimately. And a guy like oh, Bing Crosby could do that sort of like, you know, very intimate kind of, you know, that sort of quiet. He's not, he's not straining. He's, he's using the, the power of the microphone to amplify his voice and it'll give him a little bit of, do more subtle stuff. So. Absolutely. That is totally true. Yeah. So would, would you be willing, could you give us a little example of what you did next? You sing part of one of the songs you sang today, one of the holiday songs oh, for us here sure. live on the air? <laughs> sure. I'm dreaming of a Christmas with every Christmas calling I write. Something like that, That's you know. Great. And then that, on that track, he whistled too. That's and right. so I actually got to whistle <laughs> in the concert. And, and this year is my, my, my crowning achievement of my artistic 
heist because I've actually started getting called to do recording sessions as a whistler. Wow. Okay, yeah, you have to give us a sample of the whistling then if you're going to talk about it. Oh, okay. Well, I don't know if I'll come over the phone very well. I had a separate microphone <laughs> at the concert, which is kind of fun. But he does a little warble in the middle of that tune. It's like... <laughs> That's kind of a thing. Wow, there's a there's a crowd of one here in the studio tonight, just me, and I'm I'm really enjoying this. I hope our listeners are enjoying it too. You're tuned into Cascade of History on Space 101.1 FM. In case you're just joining us, it's Jake Bergevin. He's 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 many things. He's a professional musician, uh, master's degree trumpet performer, uh, longtime figure in the um, scholastic jazz scene here in the Northwest. But he's also he's a holiday crooner, and there aren't many holiday crooners left. So. Um, so when people want to see you over here in the Puget Sound area, I know you earlier it seems like during the pandemic you were doing some weekly gigs, uh, like on your on a on a deck somewhere. But you do you do perform out and around Seattle quite a bit, don't you? Yeah, yeah, I do. Uh, thanks for asking. Yeah, that pandemic thing was a total hoot. Those were on the, the <laughs> decks of my home. Oh. I had my whole neighborhood coming out. We had a block party every week for twenty weeks in a row. It's such a smash. Wow. Uh, anyway, there's an article in the Everett Herald that you can read about that. Okay. But, uh, you know, I've been really fortunate to, to have such a great thriving music uh, life as a teacher. And my students at Edmonds Woodway High School are just uh, supreme. We've really enjoyed making a ton of great performances and traveling all over the world. Been to Europe and New York five times and Cuba and uh, Florida and wow. all over the place. Uh as a result, I, I don't really try to make a habit of playing out in public spaces too often. And so I've been fortunate to just get uh, some really kind of uh, boutique clients that want me to play their private parties. And so I've made a whole life of just playing for private parties for, you know, big Fortune 500 companies and, and uh, things at the, the Fairmont Olympic Hotel and, you know, that kind of a thing. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to another wonderful New Year's Eve at the Lodge, which is a, a boutique hotel in uh, St. Edward Park over there in Canmore. Oh, yeah, um, and yeah. Then, yeah, I also do a big band. I started during the pandemic with a bunch of my former students, and that's been really fun. And we play once a month standing gig right now at a, a club called Aurora Borealis, which hmm. is in Shoreline. Uh, and so they can catch that. There's not even any cover charge for that, which is really fun. The next time we play there is this Wednesday, actually, on the 21st. Oh, right on. And now the the it seems like so many high schools and middle schools, even in the Seattle area and the Northwest in particular, just keep cleaning up at these big national jazz competitions back in New York. And that seems like that's been going on for two or three decades, if not longer. Is there some yeah. secret? What what's the, the what's the history? What's the origins of that? that just the, the people, schools excelling in jazz in the Northwest and winning national competitions? Uh, I'll give you my reader's jazz version. I think, you know, people make programs. So there were some super charismatic leaders at the forefront that convinced some administrators to let jazz become part of the curriculum in public school. And so once jazz kind of carved its way into the school day, uh, that's certainly helped. Um, I'm thinking of people like John Mallard, who is my mentor at Central Washington University, and my band director that I mentioned earlier, Gary Evans, who had a thriving jazz program at Lake Washington and Roosevelt Junior High. Yeah. Um, and then there was a guy named Hal Sherman, you know, all through the 70s and 80s that was at Kent Meridian High School that used to hold a concert similar to our current day Hot Java Cool Jazz at Starbucks Post. It was uh, called the Kent Meridian Jazz Festival, and they would have four college bands and one high school band, and it was just a killer concert. And they would always have some national artists play at the concert. And so jazz, uh, as with most things, I think, in the arts are caught. You know, it's caught more than taught. And so once some kids get turned onto it, and they go to these live shows and just oh, my gosh, this got my heart, then it just kind of spread like wildfire. So I think that's part of it. I think the other part of it is we don't have a big thriving marching band scene. Because of our weather and climate. <laughs> so a lot of these schools from all over the United States, and, you know, Georgia and Texas, it's all about marching all the time. Wow. And so they can't give the same kind of resources and time to jazz, but we've decided to. And there's a way longer story, you know, the whole 
Jackson Street history and yeah, um, the, you know Quincy Jones and on and on, some killer people. I got to meet um, Robert Nat, Bob Nat at Washington Middle School when he was retiring about, God, it's been maybe 10 years ago now, I shot a piece for, about him for the Seattle Channel and got to spend some time around the Washington Middle School jazz band. Those guys were great for middle school kids. They were amazing. I mean, they were amazing for anybody. So They were amazing for yeah. anybody. And yeah. He was just an amazing director, as you know. Yeah, he's a cool guy. Just cool to hang out with. Well, Jake Bergerman, um, thanks for joining us on Cascade of History. I want, don't want to prevent you from going and stalking any other celebrities who might be in Spokane, whose uh, dressing rooms you want to go knock on the door of tonight. But it's still early. It's still early. It's only eight. Thanks eight, for eight. paying attention, Felix. It's, I'm <laughs> so proud of all you've done there. And thanks for uh, for giving me a little time here. And uh, thanks for your, all your enthusiasm. It's all right. fun to watch. Let's, uh, let's have you back on again sometime. And, th- and maybe we'll have you in the studio and do some actual in-person live studio crooning and whistling. That would be really fun. That would be super fun. All right. Merry Christmas, Jake Bergman. Thanks. Uh, safe travels. We'll talk soon. Have a happy new year. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's Jake Bergman, jazz musician and holiday crooner over there, talking to us live from Spokane, where he just gave a big show at the Fox Theater. Uh, gave one earlier tonight and one last night as well. Um, you know, it's interesting. Uh, with the, uh, the audio issues I'm having here with the equipment, um, right now, ordinarily, I would say let's... Uh, Let's play some music, or we'll listen to some interesting recording from some time. But I'm going to actually pick up the phone. Let's see if I can get uh, Natalie on right now. Hang on one second. Natalie, can you hear me? Yeah, hi. Yeah. Hi, you're on the air. I'm having some technical issues. I can't really play my audio <laughs> that I would play normally between guests. I would play a song, and you and I would be able to have a little chat off air. But not possible tonight due to technical difficulties. So you're on Cascade of History, Natalie Picard with Heritage BC. How are you doing this evening? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me on. Now, Art, we, we pride ourselves here on Cascade of History number, on a couple things. Number one, we're a live show. So every Sunday night at 8 o'clock Pacific time, we're on for an hour talking to people all around the Northwest, Washington, Oregon, Idaho, British Columbia. Um, and so we just talked to a crooner in Spokane. We just got done doing a big holiday show at one of the big theaters in downtown Spokane where Bing Crosby was from. And later on, we're going to be talking to a a guy who's been a Santa, who's been, who is Santa Claus. He's been talking to kids and greeting kids here as Santa for decades. So what part of BC are we talking to you from tonight? Uh, so I'm based in Vancouver, okay. uh, the traditional territories of the Tsleil-Waututh, uh, Musqueam, and Squamish people. Um, and that's in Canada. <laughs> yes. Okay. Well, again, thanks for taking time to join us. Um, so I saw something, it was a week or so ago, about Heritage Week. And I was intrigued because I don't know of anything similar here in Washington or in Oregon or Idaho. I could be wrong. There could be similar things. But for someone who knows nothing about what Heritage Week is, can you give me kind of the basic background, kind of the sales pitch on what what Heritage Week is? Yeah, for sure. Um, So Heritage Week uh, was actually initially founded as Heritage Day uh, in 1973. And it was something that was established by the National Trust for Canada which is a national organization uh, whose interest is in saving uh, historic buildings and heritage sites uh, in Canada. Um, and they established Heritage Day as the third Monday in February nationally, and then that ended up expanding into Heritage Week. And the goal was to put a spotlight on the importance of heritage as a uh, uh, and also as cultural practices and experiences for bringing communities together, uh, for helping understand our history and, you know, moving forward with that knowledge of our history and uh, these different uh, parts of the communities that make up Canada. And, and so for this week in February, I think it's the last week of the month, um, mm-hmm. what I gather there's a there's sort of a joint marketing effort and groups are putting on different events and things. And, it, and this is across the entire province? Yeah, well, it's actually across the entire country. Oh, okay. uh, yeah, so when the National Trust started it, they wanted to make sure that Heritage Week resonated with the communities across Canada. And so, you know, choosing a theme, say, for the entire country uh, might not really speak to the local communities. And so they've put it in the hands of heritage organizations across the province to lead the way for celebrating Heritage Week. And that's where my organization, Heritage BC, comes in. We uh, get to choose a theme. This year's theme is always and always. And once we set the theme, we reach out to our partners and heritage small organizations and communities 
societies around the province, and then we're the ones who try to uh, get the word out and raise public awareness about heritage in British Columbia. But it is a national, um, a nationally celebrated event. Uh, week that's that's yeah. pretty cool because i mean in, you know in the I, i've been spent i've been to british columbia several times i've spent far more time here in washington and in oregon not so much in idaho yeah. but you know mm-hmm. every community that i've almost every community you visit has some some little heritage organization it might only be open mm-hmm. one day a month or might only be open you know in july or it might mm-hmm. be open you know five days a week it really sort of depends on the the volunteers there usually or it depends on the Sometimes the the actual municipal municipalities are funding city museums, mm-hmm. like in in larger communities, and even even in sort of semi rural areas. And it's just mm-hmm. that that crazy um, the ecology, the, the 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 scope and scale of the very small heritage organizations compared with the the big ones that are in the cities that have you know multi million dollar budgets and everything. It always mm-hmm. seems so out of whack. Um, as big organizations have their own staff to do marketing and to do program planning and everything. This seems like Heritage Week seems like it gives all these different organizations a chance to sort of be on the same playing field or at least be all on the same page in terms of programming and a theme for, for at least a week. Yeah, it's really important for us to make or amplify, I should say, the voice of heritage in the province. And what's amazing about Heritage Week is that you do have organizations of all different sizes during one week, you know, sharing posts on social media, posting events in their communities. And when you're able to pull all those together, it's not just the big organizations that are being heard, but it's all of the small organizations that are participating as well. So you're absolutely right. That's really important. And I also think that it's important that we're recognizing heritage in all of its forms. So we're not just looking at heritage places, but we're looking at intangible heritage, you know, cultural practices and traditions. And so you might have small community organizations in big cities that don't necessarily have a lot of funding and or uh, they are, you know, fully part time uh, or volunteer staff. And so it, it's really exciting for us to, be able to amplify the stories that are being told for all sorts of heritage organizations, you know, the big and the small. And I know the individual groups, I think they, there's an online form where they can submit information about the, the, the events that they're going to put together, whether it's an exhibit or a lecture or a tour or something like that. Have you gotten any sense, anything, anything exciting that's coming over the transom or any, any, you know of any specific plans yet for, for Heritage Week 2023? Yeah, so from the Heritage PC perspective, what we really want to do is just amplify what's going on in local communities. With these events, what we're hoping is that, you know, if somebody is walking by an old structure every day in, you know, their daily life, they might not necessarily think about the importance of that building or the history behind it and so the local events that are taking place are the ones that are really going to capture communities who don't necessarily think about and and citizens who don't necessarily think about local heritage and get them thinking about it and so at at heritage bc we want to amplify those events and that's why we created this event calendar Uh, people are from across the province are submitting events uh, that are going to be featured on the calendar and then we're doing the work of promoting it and so Every you know news organization, every tourism office around the province is going to be told that this event is happening. To look into their community, they'll have a list of the events so that they can promote within their own communities what's happening. And it's really about getting people out looking at the heritage in their community, whether it is uh, the local indigenous heritage, whether it is the church that has been there for a hundred years, the history of the trains that were built, you know, by Chinese Canadians across the province, um, connecting all the way to the other side of the country, and getting people thinking about how that history, you know, impacts their lives today. That sounds really cool. And and I, I, I confess I'm ignorant as to whether there is something similar in Washington, Oregon, or Idaho. Do you happen to know if there's anything like this in, in, these, in the Northwest states? Um, I would not be surprised if there was a Heritage Day uh, celebrated uh, across the United States and perhaps different organizations at within their own uh organization might decide to pick up on that uh, event and do something specific, but I haven't seen any uh, campaigns like the one that we're doing now. And yeah. sorry, I don't spend very much time um, in uh, Washington, or Oregon, or <laughs> Idaho. So You, well, you, don't, uh, you don't look uh, south enviously over the border and want to be more like the states? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, I mean, there's a lot of really amazing uh, work in historic preservation in the United States, yeah. and uh, Canada um, historically has certainly looked uh, down at that work uh, and and you know mimicked the advocacy campaigns 
Um, but I haven't seen something quite like Heritage Week. But I, I like what you're describing because it's 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 really comprehensive. It's it's everything. You know, it's historic preservation. It's you know locomotives. It's you know, like mm. you said, cultural practices. How mm. um, how closely or how involved have First Nations been in in BC with this effort over the years? Um, so Heritage Week has been a, a event that we've been trying to increase uh, active participation over time, and so. Uh, this event calendar, for example, has only been happening over the last couple of years, mm-hmm. but we always see great sharing on social media about different projects that are happening in Indigenous communities. And it's really great to see them sharing about the archaeology projects or the language revitalization uh, work that is being done in different communities. You know, there's, I think, over 200 uh, different uh, First Nations uh, in British Columbia alone. And so wow. it's just the breadth of culture that um, we hope Heritage Week uh, is able to highlight, you know, not include, and then also including, you know, Chinese Canadians, Japanese Canadians, uh, South Asian Canadians, there's, and then uh, British and Ukrainian, you know, there's so yeah, many yeah. cultural groups that make up this province. And it's really exciting to have a week where we can celebrate all of these different cultures and uh, the buildings, whether it's the, the Gudwara or the Japanese language school in Vancouver or the Anglican church uh, that is being restored in Greenwood or, you know, just pulling all these different stories together because that's, cool. that's the fabric of our heritage of, of the province. Yeah, see, because I think here in, in Washington in particular, you know, we have a state historical society that runs a museum down in Tacoma and that has a like a heritage assistance program, like technical assistance for museums and things. Um we have a statewide historic preservation group, the Washington Trust for Historic Preservation, and there's mm-hmm. preservation groups in big cities, and different big cities have their you know their bigger heritage museums and historical societies and that sort of thing. Um, but I and I don't think there's any one group that does what Heritage BC does. Um, in fact, I mean, what what actually what is Heritage BC? What do you guys do the rest of the year? What's what's the main <laughs> thrust of the work you guys do? Yeah. Um so we're quite busy throughout the year. Uh, Heritage Week is certainly the time when we are the most uh, public-facing, where we're really focusing on uh, public awareness of heritage and amplifying the work that our members are doing. We're a non-for-profit, uh, member-based organization. We have members who work in heritage in a huge variety of ways, uh, heritage planners that work for municipalities, uh, architects, engineers that work on the restoration of heritage buildings, of course, societies and small museums uh, all across the province and even the smallest communities. And we support them in all the ways we can. Uh, One of the things that we are most proud of is our Heritage Legacy Fund. Uh, Last year, or this year, I should say, uh, in April, uh, we funded $259,000 worth of projects, including heritage conservation, planning, awareness, and Indigenous partnerships. Mm-hmm. And I believe that was 27 communities across the province that we were able to fund uh, doing work to support heritage in their communities. Um, and mm-hmm. then we also do uh, professional development. So we offer webinars and other pieces that educate um, heritage professionals so that we can uh, you know, support uh, heritage in all of its forms in BC. That's great. That's great. And I mean, it's a kind of dumb question. I mean, I know... Um, here in Washington, um, there's mm-hmm. sort of a, there's a small, I'd say a small group of people who are devoted to history and heritage and historic preservation. Not, not, it's not some huge sector of the, uh, of the, of society. But one thing I've noticed, and we've talked about this a few times before on, on Cascade of History, how much social media has elevated um, mm. kind of the surface level of history, which isn't a bad thing, but there's so many so many Facebook pages in particular that are devoted to, mm-hmm. you know, history of Seattle, history of Spokane, history of Portland, history of Boise, history of Vancouver, mm-hmm. where yeah. people post random, it drives me crazy because people post random pictures, you know, with no context, or they'll post a picture of, <laughs> you know, a, a water skier in December, or they'll post a picture mm-hmm. of Santa Claus in July, and they don't, you know, they just, here, it's basically it's like, you know, here's a cool picture I found or here's a cool picture I downloaded off another site and I'm not putting any, not crediting where it's from. Oh, no, um, yeah. And it's, and so there's, I feel like the bulk of the people who in, appreciate those those kinds of uh, Facebook pages, they just, they like old pictures and they don't, they, the context is, it's part of it, but it's not like a, they're not checking mm-hmm. to see the, the accession, accession number mm-hmm. or the uh, photo credit the way someone like me would just because I'm curious or, 
Um, mm-hmm. So it feels like there's on, on one on one hand, heritage and history has never been more popular and never been more widespread, never been more consumed more at a greater greater um, widespread way than it has been in the Facebook era, where, where <laughs> people of all ages are doing these kinds of things with pictures on Facebook. At the same time, though, you know, with the pandemic of the last couple of years and museums having to close for a while and not letting visitors in, um, mm-hmm. funding dwindling here in the states for for transportation to get kids on field trips, on buses to schools and stuff. Mm-hmm. I, I guess it's kind of a, a long, not quite a rant or a ramble here, but it just sort of feels like heritage is always kind of limping along here. There's like it's never really, never really flush with funds or flush with with public or and or private support. Um, how would you characterize how's heritage and history in in BC in terms of the public appreciation and and public engagement and you know how mm-hmm. how uh, how popular is history in in British Columbia? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of what you're describing does really resonate with uh, how we see heritage uh, being, ex- uh, you know, experienced and the emphasis that is put on heritage in the public sphere in BC. Um, I, I find it interesting uh, that you talk about these photo, these Facebook groups, because I do think that there's an enthusiasm that you're describing for history and for heritage. Um, but it comes from a personal place, right? Like, I love seeing these Facebook groups, and, you know, they are local, right? So the people who follow them tend to have grown up in whatever town, you know, we have a lot of lost. So a very popular uh, Facebook page is called the Lost Kootenays, um, which is in the interior of BC, uh, or closer to the east side of BC. And, um, you know, every Lost Kootenays post has huge engagement, and most of the comments are saying, oh, I remember that, or, oh, that's uh, this guy who grew up with my mother down that street or uh oh remember when that restaurant was open it was so great (laughs) and so it's clear that there's this desire to connect with uh you know community and and have shared memories and 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 tap into this this history and you know this nostalgia and i think that um understanding that we have to uh, therefore make heritage feel relevant and um present and contemporary, um, which, you know, it feels like an, an oxymoron almost to say, let's make heritage contemporary, <laughs> but it is, it really is about trying to find ways that we can make heritage um, feel vital to uh, the to people in, in their daily lives, and whether that's, you know, transforming uh, or seeing some adaptive reuse in, a her- in an old building yeah. that, you know, has a long history mm-hmm. in a town, but it's now being turned into a theater, which is what uh, happened in Cranbrook, D.C. They turned the old, uh, uh, what was it, the Masons? Um, oh, like a fraternal organization, lodge yeah, building? Cool. Yeah, Neat. yeah they, they turned one of those old buildings into a community theater, uh, and it, it runs plays every year, and it's used, and the community loves it. And, you know, who knows how that building would be appreciated if it wasn't being used in a contemporary way that's meaningful to the community. Um you know, there's events in Chinatown where there's, uh, you know, lion uh, dancing happening in the streets for Chinese New Year. And, you know, these events that are contemporary are a way of connecting to heritage. And so I really think that it's on the shoulders of people who are passionate about heritage to find those connections, to figure out, like, what is it about heritage that is valuable? Why do we, because we do know it's important and, and communicating that importance and how that history does have a very strong and important tie to the lives that we're living today. Oh yeah, and this and the, it's these these great stories that are just there to be told, and that that have mm-hmm. lessons that can be carried forward in terms of you know things that were done differently in the past that were that were not you know the best way to do things, and you know let's not repeat the mistakes of the past. One mm-hmm. thing, I, I, and I've talked about this here before too, this notion of what I really like about social media history, you know, those those nostalgia sites included, though they do drive me crazy when they lack context. Um, it's <laughs> like I'll see uh, like the big museum here, the Museum of History and Industry, where I used to work, you know, 15, 20 years ago. Um, they have an amazing collection of photographs from the 1962 Seattle World's Fair. Mm-hmm. So they'll they'll post a picture of the Space Needle under construction or the monorail, you know, on its inaugural run or whatever. But then other people will comment like what you're saying. They're saying, oh, yeah, I remember. I remember when that happened. Yeah, my dad used to do that. But then people will post their own pictures like, you know, here's the here's the official photograph of the Space Needle. But then here's a picture of a family standing underneath it, you know, where the kids mm-hmm. have balloons and stuff. And it's just this like that's I just I think that's the coolest thing to see when you have photos coming from different sources, official and then unofficial private kind of melding mm-hmm. together in one thread. I just think mm-hmm. that's really cool. And I think that will create this incredible record for 
you know, much more uh, digital savvy people hundreds mm -hmm. of years from now to sort through the, you know, the strata of these different mm -hmm. photo threads on social media will be incredible. They'll just be, yeah. they'll be, they'll be inundated with information and data and context to be able to do things, to look into history far deeper than we can right now and have, you know, far greater appreciation for how all these things meld is the official and the unofficial and the private and the, and the, and the public and that sort of stuff. So I, I'm encouraged about it. And I think that whole, there's always nostalgia or sentimentality or that sort of surface level of history. That's, that's what draws people in. And then you can sort of tell them a story that helps them learn something more they weren't expecting and kind of captivates them in a way that, you know, just, just the, the picture of Santa Claus in July or the water mm -hmm. skier in December, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's just the start. So. Well, yeah, and I, you know, I strongly believe that the community also, uh, the stories that they have to tell are important for the institution to listen to. Absolutely. Because if the institution isn't telling the stories that matter to the community, then the institution is not serving the community. And I strongly believe that that's what heritage organizations should be doing, especially, you know, museums, that, uh, that your role is to be a steward of, of the history for your community. Absolutely. And that means telling their stories. All right. Well, Natalie Picard, thanks for joining us on Cascade of History to tell us all about Heritage Week. Um, uh, before we say goodbye officially, could you tell us when Heritage Week is and where people can go for more information online? Yeah. So Heritage Week is uh, the third week of February, uh, from February 20th to 26th, 2023, so the next year. Um, and they can go to our website, heritagebc.ca, uh, heritage-week, and you can find all the information there. And, and I lied. One last question. Tell me the theme again, and tell me what the theme's about, just the quick version of that. Yeah, so the theme is always in all ways, and it is the idea that it is the parts about history that excite you and the parts of your local community's heritage that excite you uh, are the ways that you can celebrate it. Whatever way is the way that you are excited about delving into this history, this heritage, is the way that we want you to celebrate Heritage uh, this upcoming Heritage Week. Very nice. Natalie Picard with Heritage BC, thanks for joining us on Cascade of History, and have a good evening. Yeah, thank you so much. Have a good evening. Bye-bye. That's Natalie Picard with Heritage BC, and Heritage Week is coming up, and we'll have the, I'll put the link to the Heritage BC website on the Cascade of History Facebook page. If you haven't liked the Facebook page yet, please do so. Um, Space 101.1 FM has their own Facebook page as well. There's all kinds of other great programs. I'm always listening to the program that comes on before Cascade of History. I think it's called Music as History, History as Music, or History as Music, Music as History. It's some version of that. And uh, the DJ always picks a theme. And tonight it was about telephones. And he sort of plays songs related to all sorts of things about telephone numbers and <laughs> calling and everything. Anyway, it's a, it's a great show. There's all kinds of great shows. Space101FM.org is our website. You can go there to get program schedules, find out how to make a contribution. We are run completely on listener contributions. Everyone you hear on the air is a volunteer, but the electricity isn't a volunteer, and the uh, equipment isn't a volunteer. So if there's ways to support us, if you feel like making a year-end donation, go to Space101FM.org. Um, I'm just waiting for the phone to ring here because we're waiting to hear from Santa Bill. And uh, I don't have any music to play since my audio player is dead for some, for some reason. Let me try it. Let's, uh, while we're waiting for Bill to call, I will just kind of fill the dead air time here. His, uh, when I was driving over tonight, it was snowing, and I'm excited about a big snowstorm hopefully coming. And, and I'm not giving a weather forecast here. Uh, don't, uh, don't take my word for it. Let me see if I can make this thing. Oh, there we go. There, I'm hearing a sound now. Okay. Let's do this then. Let's go to a little audio treat that I wanted to play earlier. And this is, let's see, here we go. This is Dick Foley from the Brothers Four telling a little Christmas story about their Brothers Four Christmas album from 1964. Thinking back to the recording of that uh, Christmas album in New York in the month of July, 1964. And it was a very warm July, very non-Christmas-like. So in the heat of a, of a New York July, we recorded these uh, 12 sides, and the other irony of the recording session is that the fellow who wrote the charts and produced the sessions was himself Jewish and didn't even celebrate Christmas, but he wrote some wonderful arrangements nonetheless. Long time ago in Bethlehem, so the Holy Bible say, Mary's boy child Jesus was born on Christmas Day. Hark now, hear the angels sing, 
Santa, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Ah, wonderful. How are you doing? How are you doing? Thanks for making time to join us on Cascade of History. Um, now, Santa, what should we call you? Should we call you Santa, or do you go go by a additional name with Santa, or just Santa? I go by Santa Bill. Santa Bill. Now, Santa Bill, where do you, where do people where do you where do you hear the wishes of, of uh, Northwest children? Uh, I do that at the SeaCat Commons in Federal Way. And how many years have you been doing that? I've been doing it twenty eight years. <laughs> So you you you've been Santa Bill for almost thirty years, uh, almost thirty years. Yes. What's what's changed the most in those twenty eight years you've been doing this? Well, uh, years ago when we started, the lines were a lot longer. There was a lot more people coming to the malls, and uh, we you know uh, the mall scene has changed a little bit. The lines are not quite as long, but uh, we still have the children and the parents who. Uh, like to come and see Santa, and once they get us their favorite Santa, they will come back almost every year to get their picture taken with their children. So, twenty-eight years is a is a pretty long time. I imagine you must have seen you must be seeing grandkids of kids that you saw. Well, maybe not grandkids yet, but maybe are you seeing grandkids of kids you saw twenty-eight years ago yet? Yes, I have. In fact, I had a lady this year here. She brought her photo of her. When I was, I held her in my arms, and uh, she is now, of course, married and has children, and uh, have brought those little ones in to me, and that happened this year. Wow. So let's see. So um, what's what's your schedule like? Give me your typical holiday schedule for Santa Bill. When 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 say it's not a pandemic, say it's the normal times. What's when does it start? How often do you work? What's what's it like? Well, I usually do the uh, first three weeks in December. And it's usually I, I, I do the during the week, Monday through Friday. When I first started out, I did uh, um, on the weekends and I, I closed for many years. But now I just do the first three weeks in uh, December, Monday through Friday. Now, when you say you close, what does that mean? 
uh, when uh, the uh, when I say close on Christmas Eve, uh, they usually uh, the last photo is taken at six, six o'clock. Whenever the mall closes, that's the last photo. And um, were you actually working during the pandemic? Yes, we did. How did that work? Well, it was different in that we uh, Santa was in a sleigh. I'm usually in a chair where you can hold the, uh, the kids in a on your put the kids on your lap. And uh, that that was two years ago. We was in a sleigh, and you didn't uh, hold the kids. They sit next to you. They actually put them where uh, uh, Rudolph would be. The reindeer would be next to the sleigh. And so that was a way to kind of, and I imagine that far fewer people probably took part in 2020 and 2021 than had, than had in 2019. Yes, they did. And and those two years there, uh, everybody wore a mask. Okay. What's mask wearing like? What's mask wearing been like this year in 2022? Well, um, we shoot without mask. Yeah. It seems like most people have moved moved beyond the mask phase in a lot of, most, a lot of cases. Most people have moved beyond the mask phase. Yeah. Those that did have a mask on, they might wear the mask till they got right up, but when they got their actual picture taken, then they took the mask off. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I imagine be, becoming Santa Bill, serving as Santa Bill, it, it, must, it must be a calling, right? Well, you know, I, I, a friend that I, I worked with at the fair, uh, uh, Washington State Fair, and I met a gentleman there there, and he liked my voice, and he said, have you ever done Santa before? I said, not really. He said, would you like to do it? And I thought, well, you know, uh, I'll give it a shot, see whether I like it or not. And um, so I went up and got interviewed, and uh, they gave me a Santa suit, and I did it one year, and I thought, Jesus, this is a lot of fun. <laughs> and so 28 years later, I'm still doing it. <laughs> but the first two years, I had a false beard. And then uh, uh, one thing about the false beards, uh, the beard's kind of hang off your ears at the end of the shift your ears are pretty tired <laughs> wait i got to go back a second what kind of questions do they ask you at a santa interview <laughs> well but, you know they the, the you know that's been 28 years ago but you know they, they get a feeling for you whether whether you like kids or not you like people and we can look them in the eye and talk to them yeah yeah you, you have to like kids and enjoy that whole set and scene when you're doing that. What's the weirdest thing a kid ever asked for for Christmas? Like a kid was like not joking around, but sincerely wanted something that was kind of weird. Well, I'll tell you what. I had one that I'll never forget. And this was years ago. The lines were long. And this little girl comes up and sits on my lap. And, uh, I, you know, I asked her what grade she's in. And we go through that. And I said, well, what can Santa bring you for Christmas? Well, she says, I'd like to have a parakeet. And any time a uh, child asks for an animal or something like that, you kind of give mom the eye, and mom either says yes or no. And then you go from there. And so I looked, I said, oh, you want a parakeet? And she said, yes. I looked at the mom, and the mom gave me the nod that, yes, that would be good. I says, well, why would you want a parakeet? And in her hand, she had a washcloth in her hand, and she had her parakeet the one that passed away in her hand oh wow now that that took me by surprise and shock and i said you know what santa could almost promise you you're going to get another parakeet (laughs) and i mean i'm trying to think 28 years ago that's 1994 or 95 i guess 1994 1994 okay so there were already video games, and there were already electronics and things. Um, but I right. imagine kids weren't asking for cell phones in 1994, probably. No, no, you don't. You know, you, you get a few a few kids, you know, ask for cell phones like that. But back in those days, there was the Barbie dolls and, and the Barbie houses, and there was a high demand for those things. So dolls and doll houses and things, and then, yeah. um, and then, so what's uh, what have been some of the most common requests this year? Well, they want uh, uh, um, hover uh, that hover uh, toy, and uh, you know they want um, Xboxes and some of those really uh, those items like that. They want you know, uh, and the older kids, you know, they will ask for clothes or they'll ask for money or something like that. Mm-hmm. And but still, the little ones, you know, they still like the uh, cars and the trucks and uh, the dolls and the dollhouses and stuff like that. So. 
the little kids, a lot of that's not changed, but as as they get older, of course, and we're in the computer age and stuff like that, <laughs> they're wanting cell phones and they're wanting this and that. And You know, what you tell them is, you know, as Santa's good at bringing, you know, uh, surprises, presents, stuffed animals, and he can't promise you, but he'll see what he can do. And, I mean, it seems like there's some percentage of kids um, – I remember I was sort of, I wasn't scared of Santa, but I wasn't excited about sitting on Santa's lap. It always sort of felt like, you know, seeing a stranger or something. What is there, and then maybe it's self-selecting too, um, but what percentage of kids in your experience are like really excited to be there versus sort of they're kind of because they know they have to ask Santa for a present and they're kind of, they're, they're kind of forcing themselves to overcome fear or, uh, or, or, or nervousness or something? Well, you get the little kids on there and where our set there is, we have a red rug, and uh, those little kids, they'll walk up to it, just to the red rug, and then it's like they put on the brakes. Some of them do anyway. <laughs> and then the, the parents start, you know, the parents have been working on them all the way, all day, getting ready to come see Santa. But one of the things that I use, you, you talk to them, and you actually talk to the kid, and one of the things I always say to them, oh, let me see your shoes. And it takes their attention away from that, and they look down at their shoes, and they kind of walk towards you. And when they walk towards you, uh, who's ever working the cameras, they know what my style is. I'll pick that kid up, and we'll snap the picture that fast. (laughs) And oftentimes, oftentimes, that first shot is the best shot. Wow, that's great. That's great. So now, are you... Now, you said you work three weeks. Does that mean you have one more week to go, or are you already done? I'm done. Oh, you're done? I'm done. Oh, well, yeah. congratulations. So you can... You well, can, thank you. you, can, thank you. you can, all right. So when, when was your last shift? My last shift was Friday the 16th. Oh, so just a couple of days ago. Wow. So now it's it's, right. it's 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 really Christmas time for you now. You get to really get to really relax now. Well, you get to your home, and you can get your stuff together and, and get organized for your your own kids and your grandkids and, and uh, get the house organized, get things set up and ready to go. Yeah, that sounds great. Well, listen, um, Santa Bill, thanks for joining us on Cascade of History. I appreciate you taking the time on a Sunday night, and congratulations on another great year. Do you think you're going to be back next year? Yes, I will be back next year. Um, and can I ask how old you are? <laughs> I'm 82. Wow, you sound super vibrant and healthy for eighty-two. And, and I would—that's and I would say, let's see, eight, so let's see, twenty-eight years ago. Yeah, okay, I'm I'm fifty-four. So you you were, I was that was your age when you started Santa Claus, and now you're eighty-two. Uh, I I retired from education. I was in education for thirty years. Okay, what'd you do? I started out teaching. I ended up being a vice principal. Oh, that's, and that was that down in somewhere in uh, where where was that? What community? What area? That's in the Coma area, Franklin Pierce School District. Got it. Okay. Well, listen, I really appreciate you coming on the show tonight, and Merry Christmas, and thanks, Santa Bill. And uh, people can uh, see you at SeaTac Mall next year? SeaTac Mall, yes. SeaTac Mall next year, and ask for Santa Bill, and uh, I'll be there. Right on. Merry Christmas, Santa Bill. Thanks for being on Cascade of History. Have a good night. Merry Christmas to you. Ho, 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 and Merry Christmas to all. <laughs> That was Santa Bill, uh, one of the terrific local Santa Clauses. Been at, uh, been doing it for 28 years. That's incredible, and still going to do it next year too. Well, we're reaching the end of the end of the hour here. It's been a kind of a, a fun show. Lots of talking. Um, very little in the way of recorded things to play. I think I managed finally managed to get the uh, recorded stuff to play. I played that little uh, Dick Foley. Uh, introduction to one of the Brothers Four Christmas songs. So um, this will be, I think this is our last live show of the year. We're going to do a taped Christmas special. It's going to air next Sunday night, which is Christmas night. And um, and then uh, we'll have a whole bunch of other audio surprises. Some of the things I wanted to get to tonight that we didn't get to because of the technical problems, we'll definitely play a bunch of stuff um, from a show I did many years ago called, uh, it was called Holiday Express. So anyway... Um, Listen, uh, thanks for listening to Cascade of History, and we will uh, see you live in the new year. But we've got a taped show next week for Christmas, so Merry Christmas, and uh, if you're living in the Seattle area, look out for the snow. That sound means the steamer Columbia has reached the end of another thrilling voyage around the Pacific Northwest. Be careful as you go ashore. Watch it, watch it, that's a slippery spot there. I'll bet that hurt. 
When that whistle blows once again, be sure to meet us at the landing and be ready to climb aboard a little more carefully next time for Cascade of History. Cascade of History is produced in Seattle by Felix Bunnell. Yeah.